Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Daniel chapter 2 is a very uh, important chapter, and uh, you might have uh, studied it in Sunday school um, if you went to Sunday school as a little kid. Uh, but, you know, there's one thing that's interesting about Daniel chapter 2, and it has to do with Christmas. And did you know that Christmas plays would, not, would never have the same uh, events? or the Christmas plays would not be the same if it wasn't for the events of Daniel chapter 2. And you might go, huh? And we'll talk about that. I'll explain that. But, but seriously, Christmas plays, the plays that you know, people do in school, you come and watch the children do stuff, it would be different if Daniel 2 had not occurred. So we'll talk about that later. So Daniel 2, verse 1, says, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. So we're told when this occurred, and it was in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Now, uh, Nabopolassar was uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father, and uh, I got these dates um, from the Halley's Bible Handbook. It's funny because depending on which book you go to, you get slightly different dates. But I'm going to go by Halley's. If you think I'm wrong, you can, you can blame Halley for it, Henry Halley or whatever the guy's name is. Uh, but in 625 B.C., Nabopolassar, we'll just call him Nabo. It's a little easier. Uh, in 625, Nabo, <laughs> he was a governor of the region under the rule of Assyria because Assyria was the world power at that time. And uh, he led a revolt against Assyria and established Babylon as its own nation. Uh, in 612 B.C., the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Scythians um, attacked and they destroyed Nineveh. Nineveh was Assyria's capital. Once Assyria was destroyed, the only other rival power in the world in that day was Egypt. Uh, in 609 B.C., Nabopolassar, Nabo, um, by that time he had grown old and he was physically weak, and uh, he gave up some of his armies to his son, Nebuchadnezzar, who went out and started conquering you know, different, different nations and, and, and conducting war campaigns. In 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar co-ruled Babylon with his father, uh, and he did that for about two years. So there was two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar, during those two years around 606 B.C. Uh, in that same year... Uh, he besieged Jerusalem for the very first time. And uh, Jehoiakim was the king of Judah at that time. And uh, he had foolishly aligned himself with Egypt because Egypt was a rival power to the Babylonians. And, uh, and so uh, Jeremiah, man, in his ministry, he had been warning Jehoiakim, uh, you know, God's going to send you into captivity, into, into Babylon, just submit to his discipline in your life, basically. Submit to him, things will go well for you. If you just listen to the Lord, you know, things will go well. Well, Jehoiakim didn't, and he tried to rely on Egypt, and uh, rather than trusting in God for his strength, he trusted in the strength of Egypt. And in Daniel 1, we talked about last week, it tells us that God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It was, uh, this was when Daniel and the other sons of nobility went into captivity. They were the first wave of captives going to Babylon. In 605, so about a year later, 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish. Uh, in 597 B.C., um, Nebuchadnezzar came back to Jerusalem and he took more captives to uh, Babylon, including Ezekiel the prophet at that time. In 586 B.C., he came back and he burned the temple uh, and he burned Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That's kind of a timeline, a little bit of of the different events. Well, so the events of Daniel chapter 2, we're told, takes place two years after uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father, died. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar was the sole ruler of Babylon. So verse 1 says that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Verse 2. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, 
uh, the Chaldeans, they were men who made their living off of fortune-telling and practicing the occult arts and practicing astrology and being able to prognosticate. And uh, they professed to know future events, and they had contact with the spirit world, which, you know, we know from the Bible would have been demons, basically. Um, Now, the name Chaldeans, uh, you can get kind of confused when you're reading through Daniel, but the name Chaldeans applies to two different groups. First, it applies to a race of people, Uh, in Babylon, but it also applies to a group of men who were astrologer priests, basically. So um, Daniel refers to both, the Chaldeans sometimes as astrologer priests and sometimes as the race of the Chaldeans, the people of of Chaldea. Anyway, so just give you a little background there. Uh, And so verse 3, it says, And the king said to them, to these astrologers and all these wise men, I have a dream, oh, excuse me, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now, the wording in that kind of makes it sound like maybe Nebuchadnezzar, he had this dream and it really, you know, really upset him and he kind of forgot the dream or he forgot aspects of the dream, uh, but he had remembered the effect that it had on him. In any event, he wanted to understand what the dream meant that he had. Uh, and so he wanted to understand their meaning. And so verse 4 it says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts from me, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation." It's interesting because the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and some of your Bibles might say Syriac. I think that's in the, New, in the King James. Um, starting with the Chaldeans' response here in chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 7. It's written in this language that they were speaking. And this was the language of the king's court. And so Daniel was fluent in this language as well. And, and the Jews that were in Babylon at that time, they had learned that language. And so they were able to read this and they were able to understand what was going on too. So anyways, these guys basically tell the king, Hey king, tell us your dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Uh, and, uh, but the king put a twist on his demand. He basically said, you tell me the dream first and then tell me what it means. You know, these guys claim to know the future. They claimed to be endowed with supernatural knowledge and abilities. So it really wasn't an unreasonable request from Nebuchadnezzar, right? I mean, it, hey, if, if you know the future, tell me what my dream was, you know, and, and then I'll, I'll listen to you. Um, and basically he says, if you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation, basically what he was saying by, he's saying you and your families are going to get wiped out. I'm going to kill them. Um, but if you do tell me the interpretation, you know, you'll receive great honor and a reward for me. Uh, but it's interesting because as you read this dialogue here, it's like they didn't even hear the king's demands or they kind of just ignored what he said. Verse 7, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servant the dream <laughs> and we'll give it the interpretation. It's like they kind of wanted to just kind of gloss over that. Hey, just tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. You know, this King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, you know, he wasn't a, a dummy. He was kind of smart. Uh, and uh, perhaps, and he was a young king at this time anyways, and perhaps being a young king, and he had just finished ruling with his father for a couple of years. His father was old and getting weak and, you know, getting, you know, going on, passing on in years. And it's quite possible that these guys that were surrounding the king, his father, you know, it's quite possible they had been just feeding him a line. And, you know, and, and this young king's listening to it going, oh, man, these guys, you know, they don't know what they're talking about or, you know, they're just telling the king what he wants to hear. He could basically see through their stalling. Uh, and his reasoning here, like I said, it, it really makes sense. You know, if you can tell me what my dream is, I can basically trust you to tell me what the interpretation is. Whereas if you think you can tell me the interpretation, but you can't tell me what the dream was, then how can I trust that, 
that's an accurate interpretation. So again, it was a reasonable request. And here's how they responded, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So, you know, their response, hey, they finally, they're being honest. Really, you know, they're finally being honest. Hey, there's no human that has that ability. Uh, and, and then he, they say, basically, man, no king has ever made that request of people like us. Come on, you're, you're not playing along with the rules, you know. You're not, you're, not, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. I mean, no king's ever asked that. Uh, and then they basically say that it could only be revealed to the king supernaturally by the gods. And so they're basically finally being honest with him. Verse 12, For this reason the king was angry and very furious. And he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So their response really didn't sit well with Nebuchadnezzar. So again, he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now apparently, Daniel and his companions were not assembled there with the other wise men there before the king. But... Daniel soon found out about it. As they're coming around, they're, you know, they start killing them, and they're, they're looking for Daniel. Verse 14, Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. Now, <clears throat> Daniel had already gained a reputation in Nebuchadnezzar's court. We read that, uh, talked about that last week in, in chapter 1. He was recognized as a young man, because Daniel was young at this time. He was probably 18, 19 years old, something like that. Um, they had, uh, he had already gained a reputation uh, for being a young man of wisdom and understanding. In fact, his reputation even traveled back to the captives that were still, or not the captives, but the Jews that were still back in Jerusalem. His reputation uh, was spreading all around. Ezekiel mentions the wisdom of Daniel. And it says here, basically, Daniel with counsel, and that word means prudence. Uh, with prudence and wisdom, responded to Arioch, the captain of the ex- executioners, and he asked him why the decree is so is so urgent. And uh, Daniel must have had a, a you know a, maybe a, a good relationship with this person also. And so the Arioch explains the king's edict to Daniel, verse sixteen. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now. God had already given Daniel favor with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And so Daniel's able to come before Nebuchadnezzar and ask for time uh, to give the king the interpretation. Now, either Daniel's favor with the king or the possibility of finally finding out about the dream and its interpretation, probably both, uh, because the king really did want to know what the dream was about, caused the king to consent to giving Daniel some time to get the answer, to give him the answer. Verse 17. Then Daniel uh, went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now put yourself in Daniel's and his companions' Shoes. Going back to chapter 1. You already went out on a limb in chapter 1, right? You took a great step of faith uh, by not violating the Levitical dietary laws when the kings wanted to give you, you know, the king said, hey, feed these guys my food, give them my wine, you know, trying to acclimate them to being, being Babylonians, basically, which was in violation of Levitical law. And Daniel and his men, or Daniel, you know, basically he was the spokesman for the three, but he basically said, hey, you know, if you would just allow us, give us 10 days uh, to eat, or give us time to eat your, you know, eat our food, and then at the end of that time you can judge, and if, if we, you know, if we look gaunt and we're, you know, we're not healthy and stuff, you do whatever you want with us. 
Um, it was a, that took a big step of faith to do because those guys had the power of life or death over Daniel and his companions. So they've already taken this great step of faith in not violating the dietary laws in a strange land. They stood by their moral convictions. And at the end of chapter 1, God blessed them. God, God, they looked better. They, they, they gave a better presentation. They were able to answer the king's questions better than anyone who, the other people, basically. And so God blessed their stand of faith, and he gave them favor with the king. And, you know, it, it, put yourself in those shoes. You've gone through this trial, and, man, you've, you've passed. And you've passed with flying colors. And it's like, man, and God's blessed you. What an awesome feeling that would be. Then the next thing you know, they're coming to kill you. I mean, it, there's, an, there's basically uh, the kings authorize your execution. How would you feel? You know, it's like, God, why did you bring me this far only to abandon me? I, you know, I can imagine having that feeling. Well, what did Daniel and his companions do? They get on their knees and they pray. That's basically what they did. They seeking, they're seeking mercies from God. Daniel and his companions knew the only way out of this was if God intervened. Without his mercy and intervention, there basically was no hope. And so they get on their knees and they start praying. And their prayers were probably not like a lot of our prayers are typically, right? Uh, you know, Lord Jesus, bless us this day, guide me in this. I mean, it wasn't like that. Uh, they were probably on their knees, I mean, just crying out to God fervently. James 5, 6, uh, 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I can just imagine, man, they were praying fervently at this point. And what a blessing for Daniel to have companions to pray with him. You know, James says, pray for one another. And so Daniel, he's not by himself. He's his companions. The four of them are on their knees before the Lord just praying. It's one of the things that we try to encourage in this church. You know, if you have needs, we want to pray for you. And we, we try to do that as much as possible. Because it's so important to have people praying for you. And uh, I would hope and I would ask you, you know, as you think about, you know, if the Lord reminds you of me during the week, you see something silly and you go, oh, that reminds me of Pastor Don. Pray for me, please, because <laughs> I need your prayer. And I do the same thing. When the Lord lays you on my heart, I start praying for you. I really do. Um, and I think it's so important. Well, Daniel and his men, his companions, they pray. Verse 19, then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Man, God answered their prayers. Notice the wording, though. Notice that Daniel didn't discover the secret. Notice that he didn't learn the secret. What does it say? It was revealed to him. You see, religion is trying to discover and learn things, but Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, right? God reveals himself to you and I. And we respond to that revelation. We don't, we're not the discoverers. God's the revealer of himself to us. How does God reveal himself to us? Well, chiefly through uh, his, his word, right? The, the Bible. You know, and that's one of the reasons why we study chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. Because we want to we want to study the whole revelation of God, not just bits and pieces of it. We want the whole counsel and the whole revelation of God. You know, can you imagine if you're married, your husband or whatever, and... Uh, you're at work, and your wife calls you on the phone, and she says, hey, I was in the shower, the phone was ringing, I didn't get to the phone in time, and uh, I, got, I got there, and I, I listened to the answering machine, and the President of the United States had a message for you. What would you say to your wife? Well, you know, just give me the high points. Well, what did he basically want? You wouldn't do that, right? You go, tell me everything he said. I want to know it word for word. What did he say? I mean, the President of the United States? I want to know what he said, you know? And you'd probably come home that evening, and you'd probably hit record, and you'd probably hit record again, and you'd probably call, hey, listen to this, man, the President, you know? <laughs> you know, you'd call your friends, whatever. Um, you would want to understand every single thing that the President said to you. You would want nothing left out. Well, you know, that's really, you and I, that's the way we should be with God's Word. God's given us an entire message, his Bible, chapter by chapter, cover by, I mean, from, you know, we've got all 66 books of God's revelation to man. 
And yet sometimes it's like, well, I just want the good, I just want some of the good stuff. Or I just, you know, just give me the highlights. No, we need to dig into God's word, get the whole counsel. Well, as a result of God answering their prayer, Daniel worships the Lord and blesses him. And it starts in verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Might, another word for might is power. You know, if you're looking for wisdom and power in your life this morning, there's one place to get it. Both wisdom and might or power belong to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.3, Paul writes in Christ, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You need wisdom, you need knowledge about something, seek the Lord. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is speaking about himself, and he, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I mean, that's power. You want power? You need power in your life? Seek the Lord. It's found in him. Verse 21, and he changes the times and the seasons. Now we know from Genesis 1.14 that God created, uh, it says actually, let me read it to you. In Genesis 1.14 says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. Uh, and so God established seasons and time. And I believe God has changed times and seasons after the flood. Now, I'm not a scientist or anything, but, you know, you look in the Bible, and before the flood, times were different. You know, man and animals lived very long lives. We know that from the, from the Bible, hundreds of years. Um, after the flood, lifespans drastically reduced. Uh, before the flood, uh, tr- there was a, basically a tropical greenhouse kind of effect all the way around the, the world. And after the flood... There were extremes in hot and cold temperatures. I mean, there's things changed, and God has changed it. Now, we've been kind of in this long period of time where it seems like things haven't changed that much, right? Times and seasons. But, uh, you know, I think of that tsunami that happened a number of years ago back in, in uh, the Indian Ocean, was it? You know, and, and they say that the, the axis of the, of the globe, basically, of the earth actually changed a little bit. Uh, God has the power to change things. And, and I think as we approach the last days, we're going to see some really drastic changes uh, coming. Verse 21 continues. He says, He removes kings and raises up kings. Now, throughout human history, God has been doing that, right? Raising up kings and removing kings. Uh, about, I don't know, a couple months ago, um, Teresa sent me this thing. It was, it was, I think it was kind of going around on Facebook, but it was this map of Europe, and I don't know if you guys seen it. And basically, it was like a time-lapse photograph, basically, of, of the map as it changed through the years. I don't know how many centuries it was. But you watch Europe, and, and basically, depending on which color, you know, which country it was, and the map's just colors getting big, small, and big, small, you know, changing all over the place. And it just, it, it was weird. You read that and go, wow, I didn't realize that Europe has changed that much. But it's always been that way. God has always raised up and removed kings. You know, I think we're seeing a very real example of that in the Middle East today. All these monarchs that have ruled the Middle East for, you know, when we, you and I were younger, it seemed like things were kind of this, kind of staying the same for so many years. And now, the last few years, man, things have been changing drastically. You know, even a, a year or so ago, we, nobody was talking about ISIS or ISL or whatever those guys wanted, the Levant or whatever they call themselves. Um, but now, they're looking like a very formidable, I mean, it looks like they've, they're, they might end up being their own nation. I mean, we're seeing that. It's amazing. So we're seeing that, and God, God has done that, and God does do that. Verse 21 continues, says, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. I mean, you look at that verse, and you know, it makes, makes me think anyways. I had a coworker a number of years ago, back when I worked in, uh, in San Jose, and we worked a night shift, and this guy, um, he was trying to become, in his words, independently wealthy. And so he had this side business uh, that uh, he was in, and he was always kind of like preaching to me about getting involved with his business. I never did, but, you know, Every night he was going on and on and on. And one of the things he also used to always say is, you have to have money to make money. You know, and, and so uh, this verse seems to be saying that, you know, you have to be wise to get wisdom. Or you have to have knowledge 
to get understanding, isn't that? I mean, when you read it, he says he gives wisdom to the wise, to the people that are already wise. And he gives knowledge to those who already have understanding. You go, well, wait a minute. I don't feel very wise. Does that count me out? That is exactly what it is saying, believe it or not. Well, how do you get wisdom and knowledge in order to get more wisdom and knowledge? Proverbs 9.10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. So the first step in becoming wise and getting knowledge is acknowledging God in your life and entering into a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Once you've made that very wise choice, you know, to accept Jesus Christ in your heart as Lord and Savior, God gives you the Holy Spirit, who is known as the teacher, He's the guide, He's the counselor, and He dwells in you throughout your life. And as you are filled by Him and as you submit to Him, He starts revealing things to you. He teaches you. He gives you wisdom. He instructs you. He guides you to become more like Jesus. So to get wisdom, yeah, start with the relationship of Jesus Christ. And then it it just, it gets better from there on out. Verse 22, he reveals deep and secret things and knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Again, God's the revealer. We're not the discoverers. God revealed the secret to Daniel. You know, I'm in the dark about a lot of things. Um, I can't tell you what tomorrow is going to hold for me, much less what tomorrow is going to hold for you. Um, But God does. God has our futures in his hands. Hebrews 4.13 tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And God knows what's in the darkness, and the Bible says light dwells with him. Listen to 1 John 1.5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Are you in darkness right now? You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where light will be revealed to you, because light dwells with God. Verse 23. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. So not only Daniel not only worships and praises the Lord, but he also thanks the Lord for answering their prayer. And that's such an important component in our prayers is being thankful, having an attitude of thankfulness. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. You know what I find very interesting in that verse there? And it's totally indicative of Daniel's character in his heart. He doesn't try to use this as an opportunity to get all those wicked sorcerers and all those wicked wise men, the people that practice occultic arts, he doesn't try to get them killed. You don't say, yeah, yeah, keep killing them, but I'll, I'll tell you. He says, don't kill the wise men. You go, wait a minute. Wow, why did he do that? You know, he not only acts to save himself and his Jewish companions, but he intercedes and he intervenes, really, on behalf of wicked people. But you see, that's the heart of God. He has, the heart of, he has the heart of Jesus in him. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the world. He even died for the Jews that delivered him to the Romans. He even died for the soldiers that spit on him and beat him mercilessly. And he even died for you and I. And the Bible says but before we came to Christ, we were enemies of the cross of Christ. And so I really see the heart of God in Daniel here, sparing the lives of the other wise men in Babylon. What a wise person, Daniel. We'll we'll get to that a little bit later on. But verse 25, it says, Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded... The wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. 
Now, I wonder if Daniel spoke, I'm speaking kind of fast, I wonder if Daniel spoke slow and deliberately. You know, kind of like Chuck Smith. Have you ever heard Chuck Smith speaking, you know? I kind of wonder if he paused at this point where he says, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. I just wonder if he paused there just for dramatic effect, you know. I don't know. And if he did pause at this point, I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, okay, this guy, this guy doesn't know either, you know. Daniel's basically saying, King, you're right. There is no wise man who can give you, who can tell you the dream and give you the interpretation. Look at verse 28. But, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who made known the interpretation to the king that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You just get the feeling, you just get to know Daniel as he's going through all this stuff. He's such a humble guy. He's wise, he's prudent, he thinks about other people, and now he's, you just see the humility coming out of him. He acknowledges before Nebuchadnezzar that the revelation of the, king, of the king's dream, it wasn't given to him because like, I've, I'm this special person, I'm this wise man, I've got this special ability, I've got connections. No, he doesn't, it's nothing like that. He basically gives the glory to God, all the glory to God. Verse 31, so now he gives the king his dream, what the king was wanting to hear. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Verse 34. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. I can imagine Dan, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's like, whoa. <laughs> um, so the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar was represented by the head of gold in this dream. Now, Babylon being the head of gold referred to its predominant influence in the world, not its geographical size. Babylon was the head or the source, if you want to call it that, of all the world's religions, going all the way back to Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, in, uh, in Genesis. Babylon in the book of Revelation is described, the woman in, in Revelation 17 is, is known as Babylon. And it says, On her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination, and, excuse me, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And so Babylon was the head of all the false religions of the world. Babylon was also the head or the source of materialistic greed. In Revelation, you know, and it's interesting, if you read about Babylon, the city of Babylon, it was amazing when you read about the architecture and, you know, how, how it was built and stuff. It was just, it was amazing. But in Revelation 18.3, the city of Babylon is the center of world commerce. And it says, For all the nations have drunk 
of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And this, this city in the book of Revelation, it's going to be destroyed in a half hour. It's going to be amazing. Well, and all the world is tied in with this economically. So Babylon was the source of materialistic greed or the head of materialistic greed. Babylon is also the head or the source of a lot of academic knowledge. A lot of the sciences, mathematics, astronomy finds their source back in ancient Babylon. They, they were smart guys. They were students. They, they studied. So in many aspects, Babylon was the head, just as the Bible says. Verse 39, But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours than another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So the next kingdom represented by the breast and arms of silver, were the two-part kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. They conquered Babylon in uh, 538 B.C. And actually, Daniel lived through that, through the entire Babylonian Empire to the, to the fall of the Roman Empire, or the Babylonian Empire, excuse me, and the rise of this Persian Empire, Medes and the Persians. That was the, the, the next kingdom. Then the belly and the thighs of brass, or bronze, was the third kingdom, and that was the empire of Greece under Alexander the Great, who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in 334 B.C. Verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others." You know, when we're reading through these kingdoms and these metals of, the, of this image, notice that they decrease in value from gold to iron, finally to clay, of course, but they increase in strength. You know, gold's a soft, malleable metal, and you get down to iron. Iron's about, you know, as tough as they get. Um, well, this fourth kingdom is stronger than any of its predecessors, and we know from history it's the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire literally crushed all opposition. Um, the fact that it represented by the legs and the feet of the statue could also account for the longevity of this fourth kingdom. The Roman Empire dominated the world in 129 B.C., and it was at its zenith in 31 B.C. under Emperor Augustus. And that empire continued until its fall in 476 A.D. Listen to verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. Like I said, the, the Roman Empire continued until its fall in 476 A.D. However, back in 285 A.D., uh, the Roman Empire divided under Emperor Diocletian into eastern and western branches, which represented by the two legs of the, uh, of the statue. The eastern leg, with its capital at Constantinople, didn't fall until 1453. It's, it extended for a long period of time. Uh, and even though the Roman Empire eventually fell, ecclesiastical power of the empire continued through the Roman Catholic Church for many centuries. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the West and in the other leg, the Greek Orthodox Church in the East. And so it just continued. Yeah, politically, the Roman Empire ended at you know, these dates. But ecclesiastically and with the influence and the power of the Roman Empire, the, it continued through these churches. Verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So now the attention turns to the feet mixed with part iron and part clay, representing the partial strength and the partial weakness of this kingdom in the later years. And then in the feet... Uh, the iron is mixed with clay, and this is referring to the mixing of the seed of men. Very interesting. You know, it's kind of, it seems kind of cryptic. But if you look at the Roman Empire, um, throughout what was the old Roman empires, there have been strong emperors, there have been strong monarchs, there have been czars, uh, but eventually they started losing power over the subjects, over their people. Uh, the Western 
Empire, the Western Roman Empire. It spread into Europe, right? And eventually it spread to the United States, to the the Americas. And uh, with the American Revolution, we started seeing republics and democracies, which could be referring to the seed of men mixed with the iron rule of the Western leg of the Roman Empire. That's a mouthful to say, but uh, basically... um, we, you, you see that starting to change where we start to see democracies where, you know, the voice of the people, the, you know, uh, the representation of people. The Eastern Roman Empire spread into Eastern Europe and Russia, and eventually communism came into control over there. And that's the classless, stateless, common ownership of the people, right? Again, the seed of men mixed with the iron rule of the Eastern leg of the Roman Empire. Very fascinating. Um, so the question that I have, and maybe you have, is where are we in relation to this image historically? Well, he goes on with the feet, and he starts talking about the ten toes, or he talks about the toes, and there's usually ten toes on a, on a, on a, on a human anyways. It could be referring to the ten horns on the beast in Revelation 17 and the ten horns on the beast in Daniel 7 which in Daniel 7 is representing ten kings or kingdoms that will be controlled by the Antichrist in the last days. Uh, So if that's the case, then we're very, very close, but we're not there yet. So in other words, we're right about at the verge of the toes, basically, in this image. Now, I used to think that the ten nations of the European Union would make up and you've probably heard it before too in prophecy, it would make up the revived Roman Empire. And once that happens, you know, that's going to usher in the rule of the Antichrist. And uh, could still be. But with all that's taking place in the Middle East and Russia and Ukraine, I mean, we're in for a lot of changes. So, you know, I don't know about this European Union. It's going to be interesting. But what amazes me is how fast things are changing right now. You know, what, who was in power just a year ago, it's changed, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, you might say, well, things are going to just, you know, that, that we're talking down the road. We may not be talking that far down the road when these ten kingdoms are in, in place, as the Bible says. We, we could be very close. wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, we're in for a lot of changes. Verse 44, and in the days of these kings, they're referring to these ten toes, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So this was represented by the stone which was cut out without hands, and that struck the image and pulverized it. What is he talking about? He's talking about the millennial kingdom of God on earth, the reign of thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation. What's interesting to note is that the stone crushed the image, and that image represents basically all the kingdoms of the world through history, from Babylon onwards anyways, all the people, all, all the rulers and everything. And this, this stone crushes all of them. And it's interesting because Jesus said in Matthew 21, 44, speaking about himself as the stone. He says, And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And I just think about the fact, you know, when you and I, when we fall on the stone on Jesus Christ, we're broken, right? Because you come to him in humility. Lord, it's by your grace that I'm saved. I, I, I am nothing in and of myself. It's all of you. And we come to the Lord in humility and, and we're saved. Jesus Christ saves us when we come to him in humility and brokenness. And, you know, Jesus is really what you and I do with Jesus as far as in our lives, how we respond to who Jesus is, it's the defining issue of your life forever and ever. So if you are broken, you fall upon him and and, and ask for his grace and mercy, you know, you'll be broken, but you'll be saved. But if you neglect Jesus Christ throughout your life, uh, eventually you're going to be confronted with him. And eventually, and, it, and if you haven't fallen on him, he's going to fall on you basically and crush you to powder. In other words, we're talking about, you know, our eternal salvation. If you, if you come to him now, you'll be saved. But if you neglect him, eventually you're still going to be confronted with, what did you do with the truth of who I am, Jesus Christ? 
Now, some Christians, and you know, it's interesting when you start talking about the last days, you start talking about these ten kingdoms and this other kingdom and stuff. Uh, some Christians yeah, are amillennialists. If you know what an amillennialist means, that they don't believe in the literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. What they believe is that the earth, the kingdom of God or the church, basically it's like symbolic of this thousand year reign that's going on right now, symbolically. And gradually, you know, there's this gradual growth of the church and in the world and stuff. Um, But, you know, when you look at this stone that comes out of heaven and crushes the image, I mean, there's nothing gradual about that. (laughs) It crushes the image and the image just is pulverized. Um, There's some that believe that the church is going to usher in the kingdom of God, known as the kingdom age. And so, you know, it's, it's all about, you know, the church bringing this in. But notice that this stone is cut without hands. In other words, man has, no inter- man has nothing to do with it. It's strictly the kingdom of God. It's, it's God's kingdom. You know, we're not ushering in the kingdom of heaven. When the time comes, Jesus Christ is going to come back to the earth and, and set up his rule and his reign for a thousand years. It's purely a work of God. Verse 25, or 45, excuse me. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king and he set up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So Daniel was given a very, very high place of authority and prominence within the Babylonian kingdom, a Jewish guy a young Jewish man. He was young at this time. So back in chapter 1, Daniel and his companions were in a place of influence and honor. Then in Daniel chapter 2, another crisis. uh, And without God intervening would have meant their deaths. But through prayer and faith, God brought about another deliverance and promoted Daniel and his companions to even a greater place of honor, and influence. Now, in the very beginning, I said that Christmas plays would never have had the same, or would never be the same, had the events of Daniel 2 never occurred. Why is that? Notice that Daniel ended up becoming the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And remember, too, that Daniel said, hey, king, don't kill the wise men. I'll give you the interpretation of it. So he he really set himself in a good position with the wise men. You know, I mean, they're like, Daniel, I'm so glad you answered because, I mean, they were going to kill us, you know. Uh, And so Daniel, in his wisdom, and I believe that wisdom came from God, he really, you know, he in effect had spared their lives by coming forward and, and taking that step of faith. And so he was probably in favor with the Babylon, with the, the wise men of Babylon. Uh, and he became the chief administrator over the wise men of Babylon. Now, fast forward about, what, six, 600 years, roughly? After Jesus is born, and we see it in all the Christmas plays, there's the wise men, right? They come from the east. They're traveling. They see a star in the east, and they know about the Messiah that's going to be born in the king of Jews. They, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So, they're, so they're, they know all this stuff in the east, and they're coming along and they're traveling to Jerusalem. or to, to, Well, they stop in Jerusalem, but they're looking for this king. Where do you think they got that knowledge from? They weren't Jews. They were magi from the east. Well, I believe that they got their knowledge and awareness of a Jewish king who would be born probably from through Daniel, who centuries before had taught the other wise men about the God of heaven, the God of Israel, and told them the prophecies about, hey, this is what's going to happen and stuff. 
And these men being astronomers, they weren't just astrologers. They were very, very well versed in astronomy. They mapped out the heavens in their days, basically, star charts and everything. It had such an impact on them that they passed it on through their codes or maybe to their children. I don't know if it was a, you know, you were born into the, the, the wise men thing or if you, you know, I don't know if you went to wise men school or whatever. But, you know, they were taught that for centuries. And fast forward 600 years later, and these wise men are searching for Jesus. It's just amazing me. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in the trials and the thing. I mean, you know, I know some of us, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, I, you know I, I, I see things that are happening in your lives and go, man, they just went through this, and now this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. <laughs> I'm looking at a certain couple. It's just like all these things keep happening. It's like, man, it's like, you know, it's like, God, why don't you give them a break? <laughs> you know, they've had this, this, and this, and this happened. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed with those crises that we face and those things. And, you know, again, we have to understand God's in control. He has a plan. He has a purpose. We don't understand it. We mean, you know, we're right in the middle of it. We may not, see, you know, we just see what's happening right here and there. I've got this issue. I've got to deal with it and stuff. But, Daniel was in the same kind of a boat there. Here's this issue. They're going to kill us, you know. So, but look how many years later God used that event years later to, the, to affect Christmas plays <laughs> all the way down through the centuries, you know. God has a plan and a purpose for you in our lives. And sometimes I think we get so wrapped up in our own lives, but we need to understand that, you know, sometimes what God is doing in our lives is bigger than us. It's not just he's doing this for us or trying to do this or to get us. No, he's using our lives for his glory. And so, you know, if anything, I just want to encourage you this morning to trust God with your circumstances and with your lives, hard or easy. Whatever is going on in your life, trust God because there is a plan. There is a purpose. You may not see it now, but you will eventually see it. So why don't you stand up? Let's, Let's.